0: Spirits moving. All right. Well, hey. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, just want to say I'm glad that you are with us. And let me pray for us just one more time while we uh, get ready to jump in to the text for the morning. Sound good? All right. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of another Sunday. Thank you for the gift. Of uh, time together to worship you, Lord, to sing to you, to pray to you, to celebrate what you're doing here with the Burke family, Lord, and now to turn our attention to your word. We pray that you would help us understand your word, help us apply it to our lives. Teach us, Holy Spirit, would you come and guide us? We need your help. Uh, We pray these things, Lord, for your glory, for our good, and the good of your world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, now is the time to open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. That's where we're going to be together this morning. If you need a Bible, no problem. There are some on the seats in front of you. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 is where we're starting. We're continuing our series we're calling Life in Exile where for a few months now we've just been walking through the book of of 1 Peter and exploring this idea of living in exile, which simply means that we are away from home. An exile is someone who is uh, out of place, they're a foreigner, they're not exactly comfortable or at home in their community. And so we've been exploring this idea that as Christians, we are not at home in the world where we find ourselves. This was true in the first century to those that Peter is writing to in Asia Minor. And this is true increasingly of us today. And so another way of thinking about this is simply to realize that Christians do not enjoy home field advantage in our culture. Christians do not enjoy home field or home court advantage. If you're familiar with sports, then you know that the home team has some advantages, and the visiting team, the road team, faces some challenges, right? They're in a potentially hostile environment. The road team is not In friendly territory. The crowd isn't cheering for them. The crowd is maybe booing them, right? The road team, rather than waking up in their beds, comfortable and ready to go, they're living or sleeping in a hotel. They're living out of a suitcase. They're in unfamiliar territory, and it can be challenging. And so, the, the basic idea of this series really is that as Christians, we don't have the home field advantage. We're on the road in kind of unfamiliar, uncomfortable territory at times. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like <clears throat> maybe Christians used to have the home field advantage. Maybe you remember a time where it felt more comfortable to be a Christian in society. Might be the case, but today things are, are different. And that's not necessarily something to lament or be discouraged by or get grumpy about, but it's really an incredible opportunity to realize that God has placed us here in the Bay Area in 2019 to glorify him, to love people, to represent Jesus. It's an incredible opportunity. Now, often if you're watching a sports event, the commentators, the media, will before the game give some keys to success for one of the teams. Keys to victory. Here are the things that the team has to do or not do in order to win, in order to be successful. Our text kind of reads like that this morning, where Peter is going to be giving the Christians in the first century that he's writing to, and us today, some instructions, some keys to success. Hey, in exile, here are some things I want you to remember. Here are some things I want you to do or not do in order to thrive and be successful here. We're not going to be able to cover every detail of the passage because we're going from verse 8 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 22, but we're going to hit the big points as we go. So let's take a look at the first verse here in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So he starts with the first key here, and he says, all of you. Now, if you remember, if you've been here the past few weeks, Peter's been giving some specific instructions to specific types of Christians. He's talked to slaves. He's talked to husbands. He's talked to wives. Right? He's talked to different groups of people. But now he's saying this is for all y'all. Okay? This is for everybody. Everybody, here's what I want you to do. And he lists five things to embrace, virtues or values. And the first is Unity. He talks about being like-minded, realizing that together you as Christians, you as a church have a shared purpose to glorify God, to love him, and to make him known in the world, to love people in his name. And this is so important that we see this because today we live in a highly individualistic society, right? Right? It's like, you do you. I'm going to do my thing. Independence is really valued. If you don't believe me, have you heard about the rise of the solo honeymoon? (laughs) Seriously. It's a thing. I'm not making this up. It's a growing trend. People get married, and then in order to celebrate their togetherness, they go apart on separate vacations in different parts of the world. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound half bad. (laughs) But really, we're an individualistic society, and so it's really easy to think about faith in similar terms. That man, just uh, Christianity or church, it's about me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus, me and Jesus. That's the focus. But if we look at Scripture, biblically speaking, salvation is not primarily about just you and Jesus and God coming alongside you and helping you fulfill all your dreams in life. It's more accurate to speak of salvation in terms of yes us repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Jesus, but then we join God on his mission and his purposes in the world with his people. And so it's not about God coming into our life and helping us fulfill all our personal dreams. It's about us together following Jesus and being about what he wants us to be about. And so Peter's saying, hey, be like-minded. Share this same vision and purpose. He continues, I want you to be sympathetic, love one another, being compassionate Being humble. Okay, we can't spend a ton of time on each of these virtues, but briefly, he's talking about sympathy, right? Entering into the pain of another person, feeling with them. Talks about loving one another, working for the good of your brothers and sisters. Talks about being compassionate, being tenderhearted towards the needs of others, not just being cold and indifferent to those in your life. Talks about being humble, considering others above yourself, considering the needs of other people, realizing life's not about you. So, how can you instead elevate other people without a focus on yourself? And so, with each of these, do you see the trend or do you see the connection that kind of binds them together? They all, in one way or another, are talking about a focus on other people. Right? being aware of the pain of others, looking at the needs of others, loving others, working for the good of others, lifting other people up, being humble. It's not about you. And so, of course, we have to know our limits. We can set healthy boundaries. But at the end of the day, we should be known for this, this care that we have for one another. That we love each other, we sacrifice for the good of our brothers and sisters had lunch with a pastor a few weeks ago, a mentor of mine, and we took a picture at lunch, and it wasn't a picture of the food, it was a picture of us together, and he said, this is good, because I don't, I don't take selfies, he said, I just, I take usies." <laughs> right? I was like, that'll preach, that'll <laughs> preach, I'm taking that, it's like, and so in, in a selfie culture where our tendency with social media or whatever is like, look at me, look at me, it's like, what about... Look! Look at us. Here's what we're doing. So rather than selfies, can we be about usies? Can we get that tweet that out somewhere? Put that on the interweb. That'll that'll preach. Um, yeah. So focusing on the needs of one another, and there's two reasons for this. Okay, let's think about this. Two reasons. One is very practical. The simple fact that we need one another. Life in exile is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. There are going to be discouraging days, and so we need to show up for one another and help each other when we're down, grieve with one another when we experience loss, encourage one another. Many of us know uh, how difficult it can be to be misunderstood by employees or neighbors or coworkers or people in our family, or to be misunderstood, but then hopefully we've experienced the encouragement that comes when we come to church or go to our small group or experience community with other believers where we're encouraged and our spirits are lifted and it gives us strength to continue on. It can be so life-giving and refreshing to encourage one another in that way. So that's the first reason we do this. This It's practical. We need one another. The second, though, is a bit more theological and and mission-focused, right? Peter has talked about this for a little while in the book that the world is watching, right? The outside world, people are looking at Christians and kind of scratching their heads sometimes and they notice how we live and the things that we do or don't do and we're supposed to display for the world. Here's what the love of God looks like. Here's who Jesus is and what he has done. And so it's simply not going to be very effective to go and say to your neighbors, hey, do you want to come to church and you want to follow Jesus and come join our church? We don't like each other very much and we're all kind of grumpy We don't get along, and none of us are happy to be there, but we got room for one more. So come along. It's not going to work very well. And we're supposed to display for the world this love, this others-focused nature in our hearts, because that's how God loves. That's how God loves us. He looked to our needs and cared for us. He's reminding us here of what Jesus said in John 13. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Here's how everyone's gonna know. If you love one another, so your love for one another is the authenticating mark whether or not you are following me. So, with love, with sympathy, with compassion, with humility, we are supposed to care for one another. But let's be honest, this can be a challenge. It's hard sometimes. Especially in, in a church like ours, that's, that's growing, where we look around and we see new faces and we don't recognize everyone. We have new staff, which is exciting. This growth can be exciting, but growth can also be really hard because it, it forces us to look outside of ourselves and attempt to love people that are new or that we're not comfortable with, right? Right? Some of us get in, in routines where we do the same things with the same people because that's comfortable and we've built trust with them over the years. It takes work to open ourselves up relationally. And Say, so, yeah, there's more room at the table. Yeah, you can come to our small group. Yeah, why don't you come over? Yeah, why don't you come to this event that we're doing? Rather than just saying, nope, same people, same focus, same things year after year, but let's look outside of ourselves, that, that can be hard can be difficult. So rather than seeing this verse and then just saying, okay, pastor, I hear what you're saying. I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to go and do better next time. I think rather than just trying to make it a matter of willpower, we have to ask some deeper questions and think about, well, what's going on in our hearts that leads to our isolation or leads to our selfishness or leads to our unwillingness to live out this others focused approach I have to ask some questions what's going on in our hearts that's causing that is it possibly that there's pride in our hearts where we simply believe that our needs are more important than the needs of other people maybe there's fear in our hearts where we say you know what I've been hurt before I've been burned by people before. I've let people in. I've made myself vulnerable, and they wounded me. They broke my trust. So it's hard to want to do that again. Or maybe there's some insecurity in our hearts. We're just not confident in God's love for us. We're not confident of who we are in Christ, and so relationships are hard because we have to keep making it about us to steer the conversation towards us, so that it makes us feel better. We feel like we have to compete and compare so that our value, our worth is bolstered. Makes it very hard to be others focused when we're constantly worried about our own egos. And so we should all ask, what, Lord, is going on in my heart? Pride, fear, insecurity that's maybe keeping me from living out this commitment to community that you would have for me? And think about, Lord, how do you want to heal those places in my heart? What does the gospel have to say to those wounds and insecurities? So, the first key for life in exile, key to success. Number one, love one another. But he continues, the focus here in the text is not just about, hey, how we treat one another, as important as that is. He continues and talks about, hey, how do you treat those outside of your community? Verse 9 continues, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, we've covered some of this before in 1 Peter. Some people are saying are not going to like you. They're not going to understand you. They might insult you because you follow Jesus. And in view here is likely not some uh, statewide government-sanctioned persecution where Christians are getting thrown in jail and killed. Uh, likely, it's more informal uh, hostility, kind of social pressure. Again, Christians are in exile. They just don't fit in the community around them. And so people are subtly hostile towards them or maybe more overtly in certain cases. And so Peter is saying, hey, when that comes, don't repay evil for evil. If people insult you, don't insult them back. Instead, repay evil with, what does verse 9 say? With blessing. Then he quotes from the Old Testament. Maybe in your Bible you see it kind of in brackets. He quotes Psalm 34, which was a psalm dealing with similar circumstances. The people of God enduring mistreatment and suffering. And the psalm reinforces his point and says, what? Whoever would love life must keep their tongue from evil, right? Don't do evil. Verse 11, turn from evil and do good and seek peace. And then if you see back in 1 Peter, the text continues. He's going to repeat. More of the same thing. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Skipping ahead to verse 16. Look at verse 16. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against what? Your good behavior. In Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So do you notice the repetition there? We should always pay attention when we see things repeated. Repetition is the Bible's highlighter. Blessing people in verse 9. Doing good. Seeking peace in verse 11. Verse 13, doing good. Verse 16, talking about your good behavior. Verse 17, talking about doing good So even if you are mistreated, even if you are insulted, even if people are mean to you, your posture in the world is to continue to do good. Bless people. Seek peace. Love people. And the earliest Christians embraced this. The Christians in the first century were known for a number of things, but one of them was if you went and killed a Christian, the Christians would not come and kill you back. Really, they were known for non-retaliation, and this is what Peter is telling them to be about. I don't know where this quote from can't I, where this quote came from. I can't remember where I heard it, but it went something like this: If we as Christians fight back with the same weapons that our opponents use, then we have already lost. If we fight back with the same weapons that they use, we've already lost. Right? If we Repay, mistreatment for mistreatment, insult for insult. What does it say about us? It says that we have nothing different to offer the world. So Peter's saying instead, as a follower of Jesus, bless other people, ask God to be gracious and bless them and give give them his favor, genuinely praying and working for their good, seeking peace. Think about the ministry of First Baptist Vallejo. Pastor Al Mark's over there. Many of you, I know, have a, we have a history with FBC Vallejo. Great partnership there. And the ministry they do on Friday nights, Friday night into Saturday morning, uh, in probably 2 a.m., 3 a.m., in the middle of the night, they go out to the streets right there by their church in the heart of Vallejo, and they cook chicken, and they barbecue in the middle of the night, and they feed uh, people who are homeless, and they feed uh, women in prostitution, and they feed people on drugs, and they say, we want to be a blessing to our community. And so we're going to cook a bunch of chicken at 3 a.m. Saturday morning, and feed people, and let them know that God loves them. love that. A picture of doing good. Think about the way so many of you serve at the Christian Help Center in Vallejo. And you go to do a similar thing. I think about the ways that so many of you, just looking around the room, i think of stories already of, of how you Show up in in everyday ways, bringing meals to people, watching people's kids, showing up when they get sick. In countless daily ways, we can seek peace. We can bless people in our community and show people the love of Jesus. Peter's saying that's what we're supposed to be about, doing good, even if, maybe especially if people don't do the same thing for us. But that isn't always natural either, is it? I mean, what's our natural response when someone mistreats us? We want to mistreat them back. They said, what about me? What about this? We fight back. And maybe we're composed enough to not, like, lash out and go and attack people, but we still can grit our teeth and harbor this ill will against them and maybe pray some Dutiful prayer about God blessing them, but we don't really want that in our hearts because we're easily offended. We can be quick to anger. We don't trust what verse 12 says. What does verse 12 say? It reminds us God sees, God hears, His eyes are on you. He knows those who are doing right, He knows those who are doing evil, and He's going to sort it out in His timing. He's the judge of all of the earth, so he'll work all of it out. But sometimes what we want is we want to have the trial right now. God, we want them to be condemned right now. We want it to be shown that what they're doing is evil. God, come down now. But now we're called to trust, rest, know that it's in God's hands. We don't have to take the matters into our own hands. I know there's this book that's kind of circulating in the church right now called Unoffendable. Many of you have read it. I'm reading it as well. It's fantastic. Such a good book. And the author talks about how people, and especially Christians sometimes, thrive on being offended, justified in our anger. Doesn't it feel good sometimes to be angry? It feels good when you're wronged because you have the moral high ground and they're the bad guys and they've mistreated me, and it feels so good to hang on to that and let that stew, let that bitterness, that justification sit with you. But Jesus calls us to instead forgive, to not harbor anger and ill will against those who have mistreated mistreated us, to forgive, to extend grace. It's incredibly freeing if we can learn to live that way and truly become unoffendable. And so, keys to success success in exile. Number one, love one another. Number two, do good in the world, even in response to evil. He continues, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to give an answer. Many of you know this verse. It's a great verse. And the idea is that in exile, we should be living in such a way that it's gonna demand an explanation, that people are gonna be scratching their heads and saying, I don't get you. I don't understand how you, when you're mistreated or when you're insulted, you respond with with blessing, with with genuinely loving people, wanting their good, wanting God to bless them, even though they've done these things to you. He's saying when that happens, be prepared to give an answer for your hope. Now, notice he doesn't say, always be prepared to have your pastor give an answer for your hope. I think sometimes we can operate that way, right? Where it's like, just your job, just get them to church and then the pastor's gonna do the rest or the staff's gonna do the rest. But no, here he's saying, for every one of us, be prepared to give an answer for your hope. Be prepared to explain why you can live with such joy in Christ, even in difficult circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all gonna be Bible scholars or spend long hours on college campuses debating atheists, or on Facebook debating the masses about the truths of Christianity. It's not saying we're all going to do that. But, as verse 15 says, we all should be prepared to give an answer for our hope in Jesus. Which simply means, can we, can each of us, articulate the basics of our faith? We right? don't have to read systematic theology in your free time necessarily, but can we each articulate the basics of our faith? There is a good God who created everything. Human beings have sinned. We've turned from God. We've damaged God's good world. We're worthy of judgment and separation from Him. But God is gracious and loves the world, and so He sent His Son Jesus to show us how to live and to die in our place on a cross, taking the consequences of sin and punishment and death upon himself so that whoever believes in him could be forgiven and restored to a relationship with God. And that Jesus will return one day and fix all that is wrong in the world. He will usher in his kingdom in full, the new heavens and the new earth, where we'll live with him forever. So it's a challenge to us, to be prepared. Can we articulate that basic message? Not just wing it in the moment, but think through beforehand. Talk about our faith. This is one of the reasons that we encourage us to get in our Bibles uh, individually, to to know what our Bibles say, so that it's your faith, right? Not just mine or your parents or your friends, but it's it's yours. You know what you believe. This is the reason we encourage small groups, so people can talk about their faith together talk through these passages and see what it means for their lives. This is one of the reasons we offer learning opportunities like the Alpha course so people can come and and learn and grow and understand what the message of Jesus is, right? We have these commitments, worship, connect, grow, grow, right? It's not that we come and sing songs to Jesus and we have small group. Those are great things. But how are we each growing in our walk with the Lord? Learning, being used by God more and more. Um, and I know we're busy. I know we're all busy people, but I think we have more time than we realize. Right, if we just did the math, actually came across this study that showed uh, something staggering—like 11 hours a day on average, people give to things like sports, screens, social media, Netflix, television. Uh, 11 hours a day. I don't even know that's possible. I mean, that sounds like crazy to me, so, some crazy amount of time. So let's just say that that study is wildly off base, okay? 11 hours. That's, who, who even did that study? A bunch of chimpanzees. I don't know. We can't trust it, okay? We can't trust it at all. But maybe, let's say cut it in half, less than half. Let's say five hours a day on average people give to Netflix and TV and social media and screen time. Even that, that would be a lot, right? So what would it look like to say, you know what? I'm going to take one of those. Let's say one. One of those hours, 20%. One of those hours. And instead, use it to do what verse 15 is saying. To be prepared to give an answer for the hope that I have in Christ. <laughs> and one of those hours. Praying, reading the Bible. Going a small group, reading a a good book like *The Reason for God* by Tim Keller, that talks about faith and some of the objections that come up today. We have copies of that book at the welcome table if you'd like one. So, what would it look like? Just divert one of those hours to doing what this text is calling us to do. And I don't, I don't say this. I genuinely am not bringing this up to shame us. Like, look at how bad we are. We're just amusing ourselves to death. We're so entertainment-driven. We're we're awful. I'm, I'm not saying this to shame us. I'm just saying it to say, look at the incredible opportunity that we all have. God has given us this incredible capacity to learn and to grow and to read and to study and to mature. And so let's take advantage of that and use some of this time to better prepare ourselves for what God has for us out in the world. So, Keys to success in exile. Love one another. Do good in the world, even in response to evil. Be prepared to share our faith. And the last one here, verses 18 to 22, likely the most important, starts this way. It says For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive. In the Spirit. And so you see what Peter does here. He points them to Jesus. And he helps them remember the gospel. There's this Jesus who, who suffered for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. You were unrighteous in your sin. He was righteous, perfect, did not deserve to die, and yet, he died in your place so that you could be forgiven. And verse 18 says, to bring you to God And so all of this instruction, hey, love one another, hey, do good, hey, be prepared, but all of that is encased in this reality of, look at Jesus. He's brought you back into a relationship with the God who loves you. You have this new life in Christ, this new freedom, this new hope, this new joy. And we've seen Peter doing this over and over again, constantly, yes, teaching us how to live, but then pointing us back to the foundation of, of the gospel, and here's why we live this way, and here's how we can live this way. See, most of us, we know, more or less, what the Bible has to say about how we should live. Most of us know we're supposed to go and love people, right? Most of us could say, yeah, the Bible talks about forgiveness and being a good person and seeking peace and doing good to other people. The Bible says those things, right? Most of us know that, but we don't always live it out, and so we have to ask the question, okay, where's the, where's the disconnect? It's, it's not just a knowledge issue. Like, we just, we don't know. So we need someone to remind us of these commands. Most of us know. It's not an issue of lack of knowledge. It's also not a matter just of willpower. We've got to try harder. We've got to do better next time. Find strength within ourselves. No, something is off in our hearts. And we need to be healed. We need to be restored on a, on a deeper level and so we need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus Christ to penetrate our hearts and transform our hearts. Because what the gospel does is it reminds us that we are loved even in our failure, even in our mess, even in our sin, even in our addictions and in our downward spiraling habits. God loves us. And we are welcomed home to know this God and to walk with him. We belong to him. That's what the gospel tells us. And so it frees us from from this this self-salvation project where we think, well, we have to earn it. We have to perform better. We have to jump through the hoop so that God will love me. It says, no, in Christ you are loved by God. You are forgiven. You are welcomed home. You are his child. And so then from that place of freedom and healing and wholeness we can go and live this way. We can go and love people. We can go and be a blessing to our world. As verse 18 says, we've been brought to God. The Passage closes out with some tricky verses in 19 to 22. I want to read it briefly. It says, after being made alive, Jesus, talking about, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah the ark was being built in it only a few people eight in all were saved through water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him All right, I just want to be really brief here on these verses. These are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the whole New Testament. Seriously, scholars look at these and are like, what in the world is going on here? This is kind of hard to make sense of. A lot's happening. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but the basic trajectory of thought. Talks about Jesus suffering, but verse 19, he was made alive and went and proclaimed something. Proclaimed something to some people in the spiritual realm fallen angels. Most likely, we're not entirely sure. And he references Noah's generation. Talks about only a few were saved through the ark, but the majority of people scoffed and didn't believe. So he's making this connection that in the same way today, a minority of of people follow Jesus. The rest don't really believe or want to know the Lord through Jesus. And so, We are saved as a minority through faith in Christ and will one day, though we suffer now, be vindicated, be raised to life. See, that's the idea, right? Jesus was suffered, or Jesus suffered, was killed, but he rose to life and proclaimed his victory. And now, as verse 22 says, all authorities and powers are in submission to him. So he has conquered He is victorious. He is our risen king. And so we have this hope that even though, even if we are mistreated or misunderstood or suffer now, we have this new life in Christ and we will rise with him as his people. So the four keys to success from 1 Peter chapter three, love one another, do good, be prepared and look Jesus and remember the gospel. We have a chance to do that in a tangible way right now. We're going to come to the table and celebrate communion. We do this twice a month at FBC, and it's just a chance for us to remember Jesus, his death on the cross, which the bread represents his broken body and his shed blood on the cross represented by the cup. We come to take these elements to remember his sacrifice for us and to celebrate and remember that he rose again and he will return. So, friends, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll come together and partake. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we encourage you just to remain seated, reflect on the things we've talked about so far today today. But this is an open table for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. Even if you are visiting or from out of town, you're welcome to participate and celebrate with us. We have the two stations up front, so I'm going to pray and we can make our way forward. Jesus, we love you, and we come to the table now to remember you. Your word in 1 Peter 3 has pointed us To the gospel, Jesus, that you suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so we celebrate that we can come to the table now, that we are forgiven through you. We have this new life and new relationship with you, God. Thank you. We celebrate and we praise you together. In Jesus' name, amen.